This episode's topic of discussion is Zadie Smith's The Fraud, published in 2023. This is the first book by Zadie Smith that John and I have read, and, spoiler alert, we really enjoyed it. It begins as a kind of pastiche of the 19th century British social novel before metamorphosizing into something quite different. A social novel is a work of fiction in which a prevailing social problem, such as gender, race, or class prejudice, is dramatized through its effect on the characters of a novel. A social novel is also referred to as the Condition of England novel. The Fraud's beginning touches on all of these topics through the real historical personages of Eliza Touche, the housekeeper and sometimes mistress of real-life author William Harrison Ainsworth, most famous for writing the smash hit of Jack Shepard, a historical romance based on the life of the titular criminal, which actually outsold Oliver Twist at the time. Through following Eliza, Zadie Smith presents the Victorian era's gender, race, and class politics, as well as the life of famous literary personages with whom Ainsworth kept company through the perspective of a familiar point of view, the liberal white lady. Eventually, Eliza becomes an avid follower of the Tickburn case, a popular and famous trial which concerned the claims of one Arthur Orton to be the missing heir to the Tickborn royal line. The claim, of course, was a false one, but Orton becomes something of a working-class hero, the figure of populist sentiment that even Eliza finds herself swept up in. It is here that the fraud becomes something quite different. And to say what that is would be to spoil the ensuing conversation, but... Suffice it to say, John and I have a lot of fun trying to define what that something else is. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Listeners, uh, welcome to the Infinite Library Podcast 2024. Uh, I'm your host, Ben. And I'm John. And we're here to discuss Zadie Smith's The Fraud, published in 2023. Now, uh, why are we reading this book, John? Yeah, so, listener, uh, (laughs) Ben and I, one of the the hardest questions we ever have to ask for the show is, what are we going to read? (laughs) Because... Unlike a lot of other shows who kind of do something similar to what we do, we don't have like a theme. The whole kind of point of the show is that we don't, that we're reading broadly and deeply and as many different parts of of the uh, metaphorical infinite library as we can. So I uh, definitely was was pushing to have us do something a little more contemporary. I feel like we've definitely hit up some fun kind of classics and we've looked at books from you know uh semi-recently but i really want to do something that was it was a little more current kind of see what's what's going on in the mainstream literary world right now and a couple months ago i read a review of this book the fraud by zadie smith uh, in the new york review of books i was uh somewhat interested by the description there and filed it away in my noggin for later and when ben and i were kind of pitching ideas for our next episode we uh 
both looked at the Amazon page for this book and we saw a review that kind of sealed the deal for both of us. Ben, would you want to read that for us? Yeah, because, you know, in your uh, when you're trying to decide what to read, there's a lot of factors that can influence you. And sometimes a cryptic Amazon review is uh, just the right thing you need to be pushed in a certain direction. Uh, so if yeah, I will. Let's take a look at the review because I think it's a, it's a good place to start. So uh, five out of five stars title. I feel tricked. As uh, re well, OK, I'm going to try to read this in the right the way it's pronounced with no gussing up or the way it's written. Rather, as reader, a white male American of certain age, Anglophilic, steeped in the canon of Western literature, Smith leads me unknowingly into a typical seeming pastiche of 19th century narrative. Elliot, Trollope, Thackeray, Austin, etc. Some Balzac even. Then she switches on midstream. Suddenly, it's the colonialist, racialist background to all that. Never has literary genre bait and switch been more phantasmagorical. It could almost be characterized as Afro-retroism. So, yeah, we read that, uh, and we, we both stumbled on that review at the, at the time. It was the very top of the review list for on the Amazon page, and we were like, this this sounds like something we got to read. <laughs> yeah, literary bait and switch is more or less what I look for because uh, I want to be surprised and hoodwinked. And I, I was so tickled by the term Afro retroism. I, I've heard Afrofuturism plenty, but Afro retroism was a new one. And I was like, what's going on here? I, I knew there was a, a, a race element to this book from reading that that New York Times uh, review of book set review and uh but i was i was very interested in kind of what that would would come to so yeah uh and i think also john for me when we were talking about it as we were reading it the moment where the switch happens suddenly i was like oh okay <laughs> and that happens like kind of maybe halfway through to like i'd say about halfway through the book maybe but like that's suddenly i was like and we'll talk about it but suddenly i was like oh, okay i i really dig what's going on and it took like until that bait and switch and i'd almost forgotten about it so yeah uh i think you and i are both kind of on the same page that the kind of opening stretch of this book it's not bad but it definitely like it it the the bait and switch is really where this thing gets its hooks into you yeah and before that if you're if you don't kind of have that in your sights is like okay there's going to be a point where this makes a turn and it's going to get a lot more for lack of a better term exciting uh the the first stretch might be a little bit of a slog if you're not into this kind of book well uh, and as the review hints at suddenly there's a uh, a race perspective on what happens that kind of deepens the concerns of the book and it's given its own kind of space to work as opposed to kind of being interwoven. It's like suddenly we hear this one character who we've been heard a lot and he gets to tell his story and it really adds a lot of stakes to what's happening. Yeah, it, it really just shifts your whole perspective on on what before that. Yeah, is reading like just kind of a, a, a good, but at the end of the day, not amazing like pastiche of your kind of classic 19th century social novel with maybe kind of a slightly more modern cast to it. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, before we kind of dig deeper into this text specifically, Ben, I know you want to talk a little bit about Zadie Smith 
Um, for those of you who are initiated, Smith is a British writer of uh, Black descent. She has been kind of a big deal in, I would say, mainstream literature for quite some time. I, I don't mean that in a disparaging sense. She's definitely not like a pop author. Like she doesn't write like Harry Potter type stuff. I'd say she's she's very much if you're kind of into literary fiction, she's a name, you know, she wrote her first book, White Teeth, when she was 26 years old. And that was uh, in kind of the late 90s. And uh, yeah, she's just kind of been a presence in literary fiction for for quite a few years now. And this is obviously her latest book. But I know you have a particular kind of aspect of her work and history you wanted to talk about. Do you want to share that? Yeah, with so so uh, as John was saying, I, I think contemporary literary fiction is is where I would also put her. And she was often brought up in conversations with like Dave Eggers, David Foster Wallace, Don DeLillo. Uh, and my roommate uh, in my master's program was in an MFA. And so obviously he was reading a lot of that stuff because he wanted to write it. And, he, you know, he would often read me parts of um, Zadie Smith's White Teeth at the time, which I don't know why I wasn't reading because I was like a big DFW head at the time. It would have made sense to read Zadie Smith, but I wasn't reading her for some reason. And one of the terms that we used to talk about, which was coined by someone to refer to this body of work uh, as hysterical realism, which uh, when John and I were discussing whether or not to talk about this, we're not really sure what hysterical realism is. Uh, but we're, I want to bring it up because I think it's an interesting like signifier of like what people were saying about White Teeth and about her contemporaries. Uh, and it was coined by James Woods in, I believe, the New Republic. Terrible magazine. In <laughs> the James failing Wood. New Republic. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, <laughs> terrible writer. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, hysterical realism. Maybe there's something to it. I don't know. <laughs> Well, and, and I think that looking at James Woods is interesting because it'll be uh, we, we might be able to place like where she started. And I think, um, you know, Woods, he seems to dislike Smith's tendency towards caricature and invention while she's also attempting to tell a realist story. And I think in The Fraud, it's she's leaning more towards, you know, social realism and sort of well not social realism, but like the social novel is like sort of a realist story about people. And there's not sort of like madcap invention and satire, which was definitely in her book, uh, White Teeth. And I think like, again, Woods is sort of like this frowning moralist uh, who wants all of the stories to be like not too exciting and not too ridiculous, but also have like a clear moral message at the end. Uh, and I pulled out this specific quote where he's discussing White Teeth when it came out and he goes, which way will the ambitious contemporary novel go? Will it dare a picture of life? or just shout a spectacle. And as he says about White Teeth, White Teeth contains both kinds of writing. Uh, and I think, you know, he's a little bit unfortunate with the sort of madcap, or he doesn't like that stuff. And I think if, you know, you were to read uh, Infinite Jest, which he also refers to, Infinite Jest has, some would say, too much shouting spectacle and too much madcap invention when it's trying to tell a serious story about addiction in, in American media. Uh, and I think in this book, you know, which Zay Smith has written after writing many books i think she's going for something a bit more um uh i would say like again realist but there's still moments of like satire and sort of uh hilarity i would say and so but there's not a whole lot of like madcap invention that james woods might frown at uh and now of course nobody really talks about james woods 
uh, we found that quote uh, where uh, where Harold Bloom was. What was it? What was he referring to Woods as? He was just writing a him nothing. off. He's like, I'm a nothing. He's like, I don't care about this guy. Yeah, he does not exist. <laughs> yeah, they're like, if people try to get me to read James Woods book and I say, please don't, please don't send me his book. I don't want to uh, throw it away. And, and it was something that like, you know, me and my roommate would talk about because like we were interested in telling stories that were fun and, and sort of like, you know, uh, exciting, but that weren't necessarily like closely observed interactions between people where people have revelations like my roommate was a big joy williams head and uh joy williams is all about like weird people interacting and importantly not learning anything joy williams is very good about people like not learning from what happens or like missing the point and that might be something we talk about with the fraud because uh, who knows if somebody learned a lesson in the fraud but i guess we'll decide once we talk about it but yeah, yeah. so i feel like this is as good as time this is as good a time as any to kind of really talk about this book in a little more detail. I feel like we've we've given a little background on Smith. I feel like we've we've tried to kind of place her in terms of her her contemporaries and her influences as as much as uh, you can when you're working from a terrible article by a terrible <laughs> critic like James Wood. Uh, but the fraud. So let's let's talk about the fraud. That's what we're here to do. That's what yes. we're going to do. Yeah. This podcast is not a fraud. And so we're going to give you, the good people, what you came here for. We're the real deal. <laughs> the central character of this novel is uh, Eliza Touche, uh, a widow living in kind of late 18 or mid to late 1800s. Uh, and is London? I, I believe so. Yes, they're in London. What am I? Yeah. What am I of course, they're in London. Uh, yes, in London. In kind of the 1860s, when the novel begins, the, the novel plays a lot with time. It, it cuts between kind of the present and the past very freely, kind of between chapters. But at the time we kind of start the book, she is in probably about her like early 60s. And yeah. she is serving as the kind of live-in housekeeper for her cousin, uh, Mr. Ainsworth, who is actually a real historical author. William Harrison Ainsworth, who was sort of a historical novelist, uh, contemporary of Charles Dickens and William Makepeace Thackeray, who serves as, I'd, I'd say, kind of the deutero, not quite the deuterotagonist, I, I guess like the tritagonist, if we're, we're going to be generous, of the novel. But when we start, she is is his housekeeper. She's kind of managing his household with his his three spinster daughters and his new cockney wife the houses they're clearly very poor uh or not very poor but they've they've fallen on harder times uh william has not had a successful novel in quite some time and uh and it should be the, it, sh it should be noted briefly that uh eliza touche basically moved in to ainsworth's house after her husband and child left her and uh they had uh, Eliza Touche and Ainsworth had kind of a brief thing. Uh, and then even Touche had kind of a brief thing with Ainsworth's first wife who died. Uh, and then um, Ainsworth marries a maid who is his second wife. The second Mrs. Touche or the second Mrs. Ainsworth is what uh, Touche refers to her as. Yes. And we enter the story basically right before that second wedding happens. And it's it's definitely like a source of friction in the household. And that is kind of where things begin. Uh, that is, is sort of the, the initial framing, the real backbone of the plot is centered around something called the Titchburn case, uh, 
uh, which was a real historical trial that took place in this time period where a man claimed to be the long lost heir of a noble house, the house of Titchburn. The heir had supposedly died at sea some years previously. And this man arrived supposedly from Australia claiming to be this man who, who, had been presumed dead for for this you know at that point like 20 some years yes sir roger tickburn is the man that he's claiming to be yes and obviously there is the the man is very clearly not the heir the heir was a uh francophone the (laughs) the the supposed heir cannot speak a word of french they don't look anything alike yeah Uh, the the the, the claimant the supposed heir is just like a huge fat guy yeah yeah. working class fat guy with no education at some point they ask him if he knows about chemistry and he's like is that what medicine is and it's like no that's a chemist's shop sir (laughs) and so uh this trial was kind of a farce but it was also sort of a a big flashpoint between kind of in terms of kind of class conflict in London at the start, obviously this is like kind of the early Victorian era. And yeah. so there's a lot of class conflict. The, the, the commons are being enclosed, Ben. There's <laughs> no free land. Yeah. There's no free land for anyone. And the claimant is just trying to get paid like your average Joe. So we should support him. And so we kind of follow the course of this trial along with Eliza's, uh, past and present and part of the reason she takes up an interest in the trial is because eliza is a big lib (laughs) yeah she's 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 she cares about social issues john shouldn't we all care about social issues yes so eliza is uh an abolitionist she is is kind of a she in her youth kind of after being widowed uh essentially uh, ben said that they left. They left and then promptly died of scarlet fever. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So she's she's fully widowed at this point, which is is kind of why she's able to live unattached. But uh, she kind of loses the, the reason she had to live in a certain sense. And she kind of takes up social causes from there in a, a very earnest. But uh, I think as we kind of learn more about her, a not entirely like unself-interested way. Yeah. And sort of, uh, I think kind of the, the central conceit of like this kind of initial part is, is Smith, uh, Zadie Smith, a, a black woman living in 2023, kind of writing about an older white progressive lady and kind of using history as a way to distance that and maybe have it come across like a little less mean spiritedly than it might if she was writing in the here and now. And also to kind of engage in a little bit of history, because like Elijah Touche did exist and she did throw parties for Ainsworth and she did interact with like Thackeray and Dickens and like novelists of the time. And she probably did have an opinion on the Tickburn trial. And so Zadie Smith is kind of like putting us there one, to talk about these historical events that actually happened two to kind of talk about like the figure of like the liberal white woman sort of throughout history. And I would say three to kind of comment on like the usefulness of a novelist to talk about social issues, which I think is like sort of like another kind of thread that Zadie Smith's kind of working with. 
So before we kind of get to the turn, like let's uh, take a little time and talk. I, I want to talk a little bit about, yeah, kind of this first chunk of the novel, because like we said, yeah. this is the part that both of us kind of had a little bit of trouble with. Ben, you know, what are your like, are you a fan of this kind of literature, broadly speaking, you know, the, the 19th century social novel, your Dickens, your Thackeray, your et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I do have a really soft spot for um, Middlemarch, uh, which I would put around these lines. And like they even bring up Middlemarch and Elijah Touche at one point says like, you know, like a George Eliot, a woman, she had to pretend to be a man in order to get published. Uh, and, and Ainsworth think- is like, ah, garbage. All these <laughs> yeah. women, all they write about is people <laughs> interacting with each other. Where's, where's the, the history? Yeah. Where's I'm the plot? About, yeah, I'm writing about history. I'm writing like and, and Ainsworth, it should be said, got famous for writing a gothic novel, uh, which is set in like England, I think, like a Rookwood. And then he wrote Jack Shepard, which is sort of like a criminal tale of like a man who like loves his mother, but has to commit crimes. Uh, and it's sort of like an Oliver Twist kind of esque story. Not to um, take us off the topic, but some of my the funniest parts of this are when he's writing Jack Shepard and he's talking <laughs> about how he like has learned all this stuff about like criminals. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> and you he's know, learned- Cockney people talk like this. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah starts basically doing the. Uh, white people drive like this. Black people drive like this. Bit from The Simpsons. Yeah, but so, about yeah, like, Cockney Cock- slang. People, yeah, Cockney <laughs> slang. People say this when they actually mean this. Yeah. So, yeah, and like he's fascinated by this sort of like world that he's writing about, where he casts these like you know, yeah, uh, other novels. It's just about people talking to each other. I think they are good. I do think I don't necessarily reach for them all the time. But to me, it's sort of like eating your vegetables. It's like you got to have to eat this. You got to have to read this stuff and it's good for you. And while it might might not be, you know, your fancy meals or your hamburgers or whatnot, it's still like really good. And can and it's like definitely the way people were writing about issues or doing literature at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's something that I I've been trying to develop a taste for this. I grew up kind of reading a lot of yeah, like sci-fi fantasy stuff. Um, and I always kind of resented the fact that people kept trying to make me read like Dickens yeah. and whatnot. Uh, I always liked like Shakespeare and like, I always liked anything with like kind of more of a medieval twist to it. But like this stuff always just turned me off for the longest time. And then uh, when I kind of had my my conversion experience and became a canon guy uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, it's like now I'm, I'm kind of trying to to reground myself and you know this stuff uh, there's a reason why so many people who write the stuff you like now like this stuff is right. i guess yeah. what i have to say yeah uh, i don't know that it's necessarily always to my taste but i think there is a lot here and the the figures uh, uh, what i i like and what i think this book does a, a good job of too is is it grounds you in this world and it does kind of show you like what was going on and like what these people were doing, people like Dickens and Thackeray and why it was exciting at the time. Yeah. Uh, so we both read this, this article entering history, Zadie Smith and the condition of the social novel by Rosemary Ho in the point magazine, which we both, I think liked a lot. And she has a great little bit in there about how these social novelists were writing at the point of a gun yeah. You know, there, there is this element where it's like we kind of forget now because we have, you know, this is all the past to us now. But one thing that the, this novel really does make clear, it's like, oh, yeah, like 
life was terrible for like so many people at this time. Like this was not like a pleasant time to be alive for like 80 to 90% of the population before we even get into the race and like slavery stuff, like being working class in England was not like fun, even if it was better than being a slave. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I think the, the impulses of people like Dickens that now kind of read as a, like a little bit, cheesy or smarmy to be like so like humane and like reformist minded like they they were coming from like a place of like i don't know if i want to call it radicalism but it's like there was like a genuine feeling there it wasn't just you know we're so used to now kind of the the social novel kind of the liberal novel as this kind of like moralizing syrupy treckly garbage and you should care about this thing more or less it's sort of like wagging your finger and saying like Pay attention to this, you know. Yes. And, you know, we kind of know with hindsight that it's like, yes, that is bad because it doesn't work at the time. They didn't know that. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. If, if some actually good books came out of it. Phenomenal. What can we say? There's also that excellent quote from the article about uh, the, the impact of like people like Dickens writing about these issues. Uh, and she says, um, the present splendid brotherhood of fiction writers in England observed a somewhat obscure journalist named Karl Marx have issued to the world more political and social truths than have been uttered by all the professional politicians, publicists and moralists put together. So even Karl Marx was like, they're saying this stuff that nobody else is saying. These novelists like Dickens, they're talking about, you know, working conditions that everyone else ignores or just assumes they don't even know exist. Folks, should I say it? I'm going to say it. <laughs> Slavery's bad. <laughs> well, and also Orwell has that great essay of Dickens where he's like, you know, Dickens was actually talking about stuff. He was a little afraid of mobs <laughs> and he Orwell talks about how he has like this fear of like mob culture. But Dickens was saying things that like are true and that nobody was talking about at the time. Well, I think that that's a real core tension in the novel. And I think we'll get to that. We kind of, again, get to the turn part of what this book is really grappling with. And I think Smith is grappling with is like a black person, but also someone who seems to be like a very well off means at this point in her life. <laughs> kind of the classic dichotomy between there is injustice in the world, but we can't necessarily just tear everything down overnight. But we also can't pretend that if we just keep waiting, that the the arc of history will do the work for us and we'll just get to justice. And yeah, yeah, that's a, a real central tension here. And I think that, yeah, Dickens is a great example of that because he wanted the world to be hurtling towards utopia, but he also did not want to be scared of that happening. And so it always had to be kind of within the niceties of his his yeah kind of middle class sensibilities where where people just decide to be good eventually and sort of like criminals get um or or people that may commit crime eventually become like contributions to society and they don't kind of like get killed or hung it's like oh well he got better he you know joined this institution he improved his station in this respectable way you know yeah. that kind of stuff and again at the time that's radical when you have a society where it's like the the position towards crime is like well we will hang you or we will send you to Australia to be worked to death. It's like yeah, remember and okay. Ebenezer Scrooge, are there nor are there no poor houses? You know? Are there are there like like why don't they just why doesn't he just go there? You know, like like and everyone's like, you monster. Like, yeah, so. Uh, so yeah, but 
Yeah. Uh, so definitely like as I as I looked back at this first section of the book, which is, yeah, it's it's really just a lot of reflections on kind of it. it it's Eliza reminiscing about the past, about Francis Williams, first wife, who she loved and kind of developed this this passion for social progress with her and you know really threw herself into it after her death and kind of just her relationship with William which yes like Ben said at one point was sexual she they kind of almost had like a thruple dynamic for a while yeah, yeah and it seemed like and also there's this element where she's she's looking back because it looked like William was going to be very successful and then all of a sudden he wasn't and all these friends he had like Dickens uh like Crookshank who's this kind of famous cartoonist who's become William's bet noir by this point in time. Uh, you know, they they have, you know, they they've left him behind. Well, I, and, I, I want to mention real yeah. quick, in Ainsworth's fall is because, you know, Jack Shepard comes out at the same time Oliver Twist comes out. And Jack Shepard actually sells Oliver yeah. Twist. <laughs> yeah, and outsells Oliver. And people are are creating songs and plays, and like everyone is just going crazy for Jack Shepard. And then uh, a I believe um somebody I can't remember exact role it's either the butler or the valet kills There's a butler yeah. who kills his master and blames it's basically like has like the Columbine defense where it's like violent violent novels made me do this yeah Jack Shepard because again in Jack Shepard he's a criminal but he's like a man of the people but he doesn't get reformed unlike you know Dickens and so anyway like he blames Jack Shepard and then everyone's like Ah man, Ainsworth is a bad novelist. He he's 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 giving people the wrong sense of what they should do. He's corrupting them. There's too much like sex and violence in I don't know if there's sex in Jack Shepard, but there's too much violence in 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 that book. And that's when sort of Ainsworth falls on hard times more or less. Um yeah, and he's well, suddenly not goes, selling as well. Yeah. Again, it's like again, it's like that's kind of what I think Rosemary Ho's getting to and she's like these people writing under the barrel of a gun. It's like the the novel was like in in a way that's like so strange now because again now all this stuff is canonical all this stuff is like stuffy yeah and back then it's like no this stuff was like considered to be like if not trash then like pornography or just dangerous <laughs> yeah you can't have too many poor people reading jack shepherd otherwise they go crazy like like yeah that's that's crazy to me well and you know it's like it's the destabilization of like mass literacy i guess at some level it's like the at some level like they don't want poor people reading at all yeah yeah and um and so ainsworth falls on all the times i also wanted to talk about i i think the relationship between eliza and ainsworth is interesting because like when they're kind of a thing she describes ainsworth as being like open and free and had a, a great capacity for joy and he he wasn't trying to dominate. And then at some point, like he becomes this like stuffy old man. And some of the early parts of the book are like them arguing about the claimant and the Tickborn trial. And Targe is like, well, I, I said Targe. Everyone calls her the Targe, which is the Scottish word for like a shield. So it's like when when she's like charging into battle to defend uh basically the claimant. Um, Ainsworth is like, ah, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, 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 I think he's making it up. I think people are taking the getting the wrong thing from it. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, I, I think that the the implication in the book is basically that Ainsworth, at least when he's with Eliza, is a sub. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, again, they're not using that language because it didn't exist at the time. But there is kind of this element, like Eliza is described as being like she's like tall and dark and like looks very strong for a woman, and she's his Scottish wife is, as well. Yeah, yeah which she's yeah. she's Scottish, not English, which obviously gives her like a certain cast to you know within the bizarre uh, racial politics of the of blighted Albion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what those are? I just, yeah, that's what they call her the Targe because it's like a shield that she charges into battle with to be like, hey, I think you're wrong about this trial, basically, to like yes. all the men in the room, stuff like but that. But I think that basically, I, I think that kind of the implication is that Ainsworth, when he thinks that, you know, I, I think this is a book in a lot of ways, this is a book about like having your, like, your hopes are dashed. Like that yeah, is what it yeah. is to be in the world a lot of the time. And like Ainsworth was part of this circle of people with Dickens and Thackeray who thought that they were going to change the world, that they were going to change English letters. They were going to change English society. And then money gets involved. Dickens becomes way more successful than any of the other people in the group. And all of a sudden he doesn't have time for them anymore. He dies. He gets buried in, you know, Canterbury Cathedral, uh, like a saint or uh, a hero, whereas like William is moldering in this house where at the beginning, like the, the opening incident is that they're like the roof of one of the rooms of the house is collapsed because he has so many books stacked on it, like on this yeah. floor and it just collapses because the house is so old and shitty at this point has been so poorly maintained. <laughs> and so I think that like William is is. You know, we never get into William's head. We really only get into two characters' heads. And one of those people is literally like narrating to us. So it's it's a right. little different. We're really only ever in Eliza's head. We're for for the most part. Except for the um, turn. Yeah, which we'll, we'll get, get to the turn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But again, I that's what I mean. Like, but that's being narrated to us. That's within the text. Like that is that is a narration. So I think it's oh, a yeah, little different. True. Yeah. But we don't see kind of William's own thoughts. But I think that he's someone who he's like a lot of people, like you get older and you get resentful. And in some ways that makes you more conservative. Uh, that's not even necessary. But like he's gotten more defensive of the privileges he does have, which right. in his yeah. case are that yeah. he kind of has this inherited status. The Titchburns aren't quite into, not the Titchburns, the, um, the Ainsworths, like they they aren't exactly like nobility, but they're definitely like, gentry uh and so he's he's become defensive that he he's uncomfortable with kind of big upsets to the status quo in a way that eliza right. yeah. still thinks like are are in her interest in in some way whether that's emotional or, or material and like he also sort of uh you know jack shepherd was a contemporary novel but then he sort of takes refuge in the past and he writes yes. these sort of past historical novels that aren't as potentially unsettling or upsetting as Jack Shepard was and which are sort of like cliched. Like there's an early bit in this first part where uh, Elijah Touche, like is sort of like his editor kind of, even though she doesn't like say cut this or do this, but she gets to read everything and she reads this Jamaica novel he's working on. And the ending is like this sort of sentimental scene that is just taken out of a different book. Like, like, yeah, like he, he yeah. read like a, a very rosy, like travel guide to like vacationing in Jamaica. And there's one scene in his Jamaica novel that's basically like Jamaica is a tropical paradise and she missed it so much as she died. 
Yeah, and then and she's really, just like, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like it really yeah, disappoints yeah. Eliza because she thinks he's going to write this this fiery, you know, condemnation of of the state of Jamaica. Yeah, you know. and the sugar slave trade at the time yeah. as well. So yeah, yeah, and then it ends up being kind of just a, a very formulaic romance where where yeah, at the end it's like Jamaica is only referenced in passing, and yeah, yeah. But again, I think that that's really interesting too because I think that is Smith kind of preempting like critique of this novel itself. Cause she is kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. Like yeah. this is, if you're going to like write a book about kind of like literary history, this is in a way kind of the safest period you can choose. It's the period of time where like you have these names you can just pull out of a hat. And even people who like don't read know who Charles Dickens is. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, there aren't, you know, more and more, there are less and less people who maybe people can name, but like people Zadie Smith hangs out with know who like William Makepeace Thackeray is. They know who Oscar Wilde is. Uh, they'll get these references in a way that maybe if you were writing about, I don't know, uh, the literary scene in like America at this time, maybe you'd have less people to kind of go with, but I, maybe not. Speaking of that, Edgar Allan Poe makes a brief appearance, which we yes. don't have to talk about. But yeah, like Poe would have been an American contemporary Melville, uh, maybe some of the transcendentalists. So, yeah, but those don't show up. It's really only Poe. So, yeah. Uh, but Smith, I think, is doing something interesting here. I think she's actually writing from the past. Not so much to hide what she's doing, but I think actually in a really clever way, she's making it more complicated. Yeah. Like, I don't think she's yeah. hiding in the past. You know, something that was driving me, I, I read a couple other reviews from some uh, some bad magazines in, in preparation for this. That's kind of, that's the blessing and the curse of doing kind of like a more mainstream popular novel for the show is there's a lot more kind of supplemental reading we can do but yeah. i read some reviews in like the new yorker and uh uh the atlantic and uh uh slate in preparation for this just because i, I kind of just wanted to see what other people made of this novel and i should have known better because those are all terrible magazines uh written by cretans and read by imbeciles uh but all of them were were making the obvious comparison of the claimant to donald trump which rosemary ho even mentions very briefly she doesn't really yes. dwell on it yeah all these reviews were dwelling on it because again these are magazines written by morons uh to be read by uh the dumbest people in the world <laughs> but uh it is an obvious comparison again the 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 claimant is again described as kind of this big fat oaf who's clearly lying, but somehow manages to like get the populace like whipped up in support of him to like give him money yeah. and shit. But like, I don't actually think that Smith, like, I think Smith knows that that's an obvious comparison. I think that from the standpoint, like, when you're writing, you write in the time you live in and you stuff's gonna make its way in no matter what you do. Yeah, but I don't think that like that's really what she's trying to say. She's not really writing the claimant to be Trump. She's asking yeah. way bigger, like more interesting questions than that about. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, she's asking questions about, you know, what's the role of an artist in history? What is uh, the role of, frankly, like comfortable people in a world full of oppression? 
yeah. yet, yeah. you know, limited by their circumstances. And I don't, you know, I think we'll get to this more as we get towards the end of, of our discussion, but like, this is not a book that like has easy answers. And that's why I really appreciated it about it. That's why I find the Trump comparison. So like insulting to the book, because that's such an easy read and it's such an easy way out for these liberal white people who read the Atlantic to just be like, ah, uh, I do not support the claimant. I'm Eliza. I'm a good person. <laughs> and, uh, the, arc of history is long it bends towards justice which means i can just sit here and uh read jeffrey katzenberg's horrible rag and feel good about myself <laughs> well and to me the more fascinating so obviously when you write a historical novel you're going to be looking into it with the lens of the present but to me the more fascinating thing that came out was the anti-vax stuff which gets yes. which gets talked about very briefly but i kept thinking about it because so they uh you know the people love the claimant and they published these like <laughs> sort of self-made magazines about the claimant trial. There's all of this like physical culture stuff, uh, like these weird, you know, um, small trinkets and like various things about the claimant. But uh, Eliza makes a note of reading because she's fascinated with the claimant. She reads these magazines about him and they proliferate with anti-vax theories. And like and, also yeah. also stuff about how the suffrage should be universalized, how land should be like re-commonized. But yeah, also anti-vaccine stuff. Yeah, and like, I don't know the state of, you know, vaccine technology at that time. But yeah, it's like these sentiments get like yoked together. And that seems to me more interesting than being able to point and say, that guy's Donald Trump. And then being like, if I was Eliza, you know, if I was that time, I would have not, you know, been into him either. And Eliza is sort of like, and Rosemary, uh, you know, Ho makes that point. Like, she sees it more as like, we're fascinated with Trump as liberals because we don't know why he's getting away with it. And we're like, you know, it's like the what is it? Uh, what is that like thing where they do a reading of one of the, the first testimonies against Trump? And it's like uh, a giant the the Mueller report, you know, like that kind okay. of stuff. Like, oh, the, yeah, the the the, the we're going to find out yeah, the documents. Exactly. And so, like, that's her angle on it. But like the anti-vax stuff was fascinating because it's like, yeah, this you know, populist sentiment that has things that I think we would agree with but also has like stuff like anti-vax, you know, sentiment in there. And like Zay Smith doesn't really do anything except I think report on the connection, which I think was fascinating, giving us kind of like after, you know, 2020. So, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I kind of to, to loop back to what I was originally saying, when we kind of got off on this tangent. I think that like. If she had written a contemporary novel with kind of the same spin on it, like like we've kind of I said at the beginning, like, A, I think that it would have been a lot harder for her to kind of tell this, this story from like a, a white woman's perspective without having it come across as probably like a lot more like catty, which I yeah. don't necessarily like, I don't think would be a bad thing, but I think would probably make like a lot of people in uh, the literary circle Zadie Smith runs in <laughs> more angry. Uh, and I think it would also yeah. probably just the, 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 Trump stuff would probably come across as like a lot hackier. Like I yeah, think that yeah. she's she's drawing parallels, but she's not trying to like connect these dots and say like this is exactly the same thing. And and again, she's also not offering an answer at the end of this. There's no we, yeah yeah bow to tie this up with where she, you know someone could come away with this if they really want to make that Trumpian reading and be like, and this is what we do about it. It's like 
Yeah, and like I, you know, it's literature. It's not supposed to give you easy answers. It's not supposed to be didactic. And even though like these novels at the time were considered to be didactic, like you can still do things that are more complex and interesting and get you to think about stuff, which is ultimately the point. Not say, oh, I'm gonna do this like allegorical reading of, you know, I don't know, Trumpian politics. And again, it seems like we never like we only get reportage about it. And, you know, the early part of this book that we've been talking about is like focuses on people arguing about who did what and who do we believe and and what are the facts in the situation that lead us to think that he really is Roger or he's a, a fraud, the titular fraud. <laughs> so. So uh, I think that probably is kind of a, a good place for us to transition and talk about uh the much vaunted turn we've yeah. been referring yeah. to <laughs> right which is when the book made sense for me personally as i as i've said yeah i i think that i i kind of knew this was coming in a way maybe you you kind of weren't i i you i knew you knew this was coming but like i kind of knew when it was going to happen because i'd read all these reviews yeah but yeah. um yeah so we haven't really talked about this character yet but part of the pitchburn case uh, which again, real historical case. This is a real historical person we're going to be talking about right now. Uh, was a man by the name of Andrew Boggle. Uh, Boggle was a black man, a former slave born in Jamaica, who had been uh, employed by the Tichborn family for a number of years before basically uh, moving to Australia after being granted his freedom, saving up some money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he, at some point in Australia, hooked up with the guy who was the claimant in, in this case, uh, whose name, as far as we can tell, is actually, um, I believe, Arthur Orton. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we'll refer to him as the, the claimant. And Boggle was kind of the keystone of this case. He had been in the Tichborn house when uh, Sir Roger was a boy. He claimed to have known Roger fairly well. And he said, you know, he basically like got up on the stand and said, this guy is Roger Tichborn. I would know him, you know, like I would know my own son, more or less. And so this was really like the number one like piece of evidence in terms of this guy being who he said he was. And everyone is so won over by his testimony because to all effects, he appears to be telling the truth and is not being deceptive. Yeah, a lot is made of Boggle. He's he's not like a like great, like fiery order or anything, but he he gives off this this air of like quiet charisma and like dignity that seems to convince people of his truthfulness. Uh despite, again, kind of the patently ridiculous nature of what is going on right now. And convinces Eliza as well. Very, very yes. much so. Yeah. So basically, the turn happens. There is a huge blow up at the trial. Uh, and there's basically like a riot in the courthouse. And Eliza uses this as an opportunity to approach Boggle and be like, hey, I am a writer. Uh, I I you know, want to learn more about this case. I think that like, if we can tell your story to people, uh, people will understand why you're going to bat for the claimant. And maybe that will help him like make his case. And importantly, uh, Eliza had, had, you know, she'd been around Ainsworth. She's been throwing literary parties and she actually in witnessing the trial wants to start writing. So it's sort yes. of like a character development for her to sort of reach out and, and attempt to do this. 
Yes. So they like go have a meal and this is where the novel makes the turn. So before this, from a formal standpoint, the chapters we have been reading have been very short, sometimes as short as like half a page uh, for some of these chapters. I'd say like the median is probably like three to four pages per chapter. Um, And at this point, when we sit down and we hear Boggle's story, all of a sudden the chapters become much, 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 much longer. Uh, We probably, probably like... I'd say maybe five chapters in Bottle's shoes, but it it probably goes for like a good like hundred pages. Yeah, uh, and, and it's and it's kind of presented in almost like this continuous stream, and it's not yeah. all his voice, but like you know, uh, time skips, things like move really quickly. Uh, we're suddenly not doing this thing where we jump around from moment to moment, and we get this sort of long spiel. And I was like totally hooked at that point. I was like, okay, all right, like like suddenly you're getting like kind of the flip side to all of this stuff that has been presented from the outside. Yeah. So basically it's really interesting. It almost like has, and maybe this kind of gets back to hysterical realism. Really. There's almost like kind of a, not quite a magical realist element to this, but it almost reads a little bit that way. I was reminded a lot of like a hundred years of solitude when I was reading the initial part of the section, because yeah. Boggle recounts like his family history, basically from his father's life in Africa up to like him being kidnapped and brought to America, not to America, to uh, Jamaica and then his life. And then eventually like his Andrew's birth yeah and then his life and he does all this with like a level of like detail and like authority that yeah it's something like i feel like almost like borders on supernatural well and yeah and the narrative voice you know it kind of does first person for well right like it sort of zooms out a little bit like it's really close on eliza that it's really close on andrew and then it like takes a step back and suddenly it's like sort of the scope of history almost yeah. And so we we really watch kind of this this yeah horror story where this this boy is kidnapped and brought to Jamaica and like worked as a slave and kind of worked like climbs the corporate ladder basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. to the point where he's like he he is able to kind of pass on like a level of respect and like dignity that he's one over time to his son that his son is kind of able to then by luck and merit you know kind of in kind of like again kind of a almost like great expectations y fashion like he oh, manages wow. yeah. to yeah work his way up in the world while also kind of keeping this this i don't want to say like social responsibility but like this this he never forgets like where he comes from <laughs> and in a way like, that like yeah 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 maybe like a dick a dickens protagonist would like kind of wash his hands of like his past and like his father uh i think it's you know is some sort of like royalty in africa and so like people in jamaica were also slaves like refer to him as royalty and like he his father and him are people that write things down they're like the accounters for the plantation house. And so like, that's a pretty good job, you know, for obvious reasons and they take it very seriously. And so, yeah, there's this sort of like, like, you know, I am, I am trying to be an important person, but I'm passing this on to my son because it's all I can really do in this situation because I am a slave. So like, it's sort of like this intensity that like 
you don't really get in the rest of the book because well yeah i mean you do in some way but but like suddenly it's like the sort of like what was happening on the flip side to all of this like you know society of manners like literary salon stuff it's like oh yeah uh britain was running a slave system in jamaica and profiting from the sugar trade in in you know in in ways that like aren't really talked about in modern society but the book goes there for this like part well and it also it it raises a lot of questions about yeah what's what's even going on in in the story like the money that is being the money and property that is being fought over in this trial is property that has been acquired through the exploitation of slaves <laughs> like yeah yeah there there it is blood money like it is like fucked and you know i found the depiction of slavery in the book very again interesting because Again, kind of in the same way that Eliza is at this remove from the like horrors of her society, like Arthur or sorry, Andrew is also kind of at this remove, like because he he has managed to to kind of maintain this position as kind of a scribe, like he is kind of spared a lot of the worst yeah. treatment, but he still sees what is happening to people. He never lets it fully like go to his head. Yeah, but, and and you know he's in love with uh what is it little Joanna, little and Joanna. She en- yeah, and she ends up like having to basically go to like a like a prison and stay and run on a treadmill for like three years. Uh, and, and like and you get it her, drives her mad. Yeah, it drives her crazy. And like you get her in her thoughts for or her speech, and it's like circular as if she's just like recounting this thing as she's walking on this treadmill over and over again. One of the like, most amazing yeah, chapters in the book is, is here where basically the, the narrative takes a break. So we just get this like prophetic speech from yeah. this mad woman who has been been driven into like, yeah, prophetic. Like hysteria by just the horrible treatment in this in this slave camp. And what she says, like, ends up being true, too. She talks about like this plant that is like preventing the sugar cane from like being harvested and she like she says things that end up being true in the book as well so it's not just like you know nonsense well and again kind of to take us back to the hysterical realism you know you said there's a lot less kind of invention here but something that is really interesting in this book and again it kind of gets into again maybe some magical realist influence here when we get to this section there's a lot about curses yeah so uh little joanna kind of comes from a a separate family line from uh boggle but her mother like i think big joanna um is kind of this medicine woman uh or or maybe shaman i i don't know exactly enough about like jamaican slave culture to say exactly like what role she would you know what people would have called her but she and her daughter are kind of held to have this power of like cursing people. It said that like when they curse someone, it comes true. Uh, and then there's a really interesting chapter a little bit later. Once, once we kind of end this part, we kind of get back to the, uh, the Europe plot where we actually flip back even further in time to a completely different, like the, basically we, we, we leave Joe, uh, Eliza's head. We, we kind of just enter into like third person, like God narrator mode. And we're back in the 12th century. And we find out that there is like a curse on the Kitchborn lineage, uh, because of this like grain dole that they were supposed to like, keep going to the poor. 
and then they stopped and that was supposed to be like when the line would die out right and that yeah. happened like prior to uh roger uh titchborn dying at sea and so there is kind of this weird element here where it's like there is sort of this magical element this prophetic or like yeah kind of curse element to this book which it's never fully like it's not like she's a wizard it's not like uh right. Smith, yeah. like really goes all out and is like oh yeah like there's real magic going on here it's always left ambiguous but there is this element of like it's presented like it's presented as realistically like the characters say this is real and is it's presented as real as the other stuff it just happens to be like operating with a whole other like logical sense where it's yeah. like of course they're cursed like and like they go to little joanna and they ask her for things and it's like oh you need to do this if you want you know to this kind of spell to work it's treated completely seriously and i wonder if like earlier zadie smith because i haven't read white teeth if it would have been like like it would the the extra realist stuff would have been presented as like more of a joke or like silly and this is like taken like very like seriously like it's it's yeah. like gothic horror yeah yeah and like and i think like to me it adds this like layer of like stakes to everything that's happening because it's like oh this is like the lived experience of like the flip side of these other stories where it's you know elias is like oh i support these social issues etc and then like you know andrew just tells her her entire life more or less or some abbreviated version of it and you you get like okay this is why he's defending this claimant uh because he thinks it's actually good for him even if he knows the claimant is you know lying which he doesn't actually well, really say but yeah that's what i was about yeah. to say that's the really interesting thing through this whole thing and again it, it comes back to what i was saying earlier about like this book not offering easy answers there's never what i think again there might be in either like a worse contemporary novel or again if we went back into kind of the more didactic style of like actual 19th century authors like dickens there might be a point in the book where a character would just come out and say this is the reason i'm doing it and it's for xyz reason i think it's going to lead to abc outcomes and that never happens it is left ambiguous as to why he's doing it if boggle even fully knows why he's doing it there's some real like his psychology is is at some of like a mystery even to himself there's a really beautiful and like kind of heartbreaking passage about he's serving at like a dinner party and someone like makes a crack like about his his race or not not about not to him directly just like in passing and he clenches a glass so hard that it shatters in his hand and like cuts him up and he doesn't even notice it because well, they even isn't that when they say they're like oh bogle never gets mad yeah yeah, yeah. They're like, he never and gets mad. Yeah, yeah. So he's like had to sublimate like his actual like emotions so deeply to function that he's. He's kind of a mystery to himself, at least that's how I read it. I. And again, and there's a whole other element to that where it's like, again, everything we get about Bogle is him talking to Eliza. So there is an element too where we're again, it's presented in this omniscient way where like he is he he has like this full knowledge of the past and is is portraying it in like this this almost like a hundred percent undoubtable way, but it's also all being spoken over the table to this liberal white lady who he thinks maybe can help him in some way, and so yeah, it, it like I I I 
don't have like an answer to like what I think maybe is or isn't true in his narration, but it it ra- again raises a lot of questions. And we don't know how much actually gets through to Eliza because like the the narrative voice almost shifts a little bit where it's like. You know, at some point it starts out with it's like and then Bogle said this and then Bogle said that. But then at some point it's literally like it, Bogle probably didn't know that this was happening, but we're being told the reader. So we're like able to more better judge why he did it than Eliza. But also, like you said, John, we still don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, there, there's still this like unknowable sort of aspect of it. And I think him having to supplement his true feelings to like survive as he was a slave and then he became sort of like a a house servant almost like seamlessly like like he's literally like oh you're like they don't say like oh you're a house servant it's like oh you'll accompany this guy and then he's just there his entire life which again yeah. is well, like at crazy. some point yeah. at some point again in passing like he's basically just told like oh we're gonna start giving you a salary and he's like oh i guess i'm not a slave anymore huh <laughs> yeah yeah and, and like and he just started like and there's a bit where he's like reading the newspaper and he's like is this what i am now like, 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 remember he's like reading the newspaper in his house, like on like a day off or on like a Sunday or something. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. No, it fascinating character. Like, I, I again, like, like you said, the, when you get to this section of the book, like it all, like, just clicks into this new focus. And again, not in a way where like it answers anything but in this way where it's like all this stuff that you've been reading beforehand like is suddenly problematized there's a great passage after this point where eliza basically says like she she says like nothing real happened in england it was all uh you know party like tea parties and uh boarding school graduations yeah like literary bullshit yeah 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 and on the one hand like that is still like an elision of the truth because there is all this political ferment going on in England, but Eliza feels like all of a sudden, like all those struggles are immaterial because of the horror of Jamaica and, and the slave power, which like, there's even a part where she points out that she, it took her a while to put those two together, like to realize that like, like England exists because of the slavery system and is making other people's lives so bad. At one point she saw those two issues as separate. And then she's like, Oh, they actually exist. Which like, she comes to this point before, you know, Bogle talks to her, but like for a while, she didn't even know like those were related either. Yeah. Well, cause she very much comes to like abolition from this very like kind of, again, I I think in a way that maybe we all see again, happen with, with, well-meaning kind of like left liberalish people where you you come to these causes again not like self-interestedly but like just very much from like the position of like oh i'm doing this because it's the right thing to do and i'm a good person and then you realize like it's all tied together there's this whole like world system which relies on exploitation and misery and you realize like oh it's all one thing (laughs) and yeah you know yeah (laughs) again that doesn't make it any easier it just makes it I don't know, something. Well, and too, like when, when, you know, Bogle tells her all this stuff, like before she's like, you know, maybe I can represent your story. And then she realizes that like, she can't like, there's like, there's like so much lived experience and so much stuff to what he's been saying that like, it's almost beyond her. And when you read it, it's like, you're kind of bowled over because like Eliza isn't interjecting, you know, Eliza isn't saying, Oh, Oh, it's like, literally you're just kind of bowled over by this narrative part of the book. Uh, and then he's like, yeah, that's my story, basically, like at the end. Well, and I think that there's also an element where it's like, I think that there, there's 
a lot made again in this book about kind of like commercial literature and like what sells. Yeah. And I don't think this is a narrative that would have sold in 19th century England. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think that like a, a white, even a white lady like writing this for him, like would have made it like a thing people would have wanted to to have read. Well, At least and, that's, that's what I feel like the implication is. Yeah. And should we get to kind of like what happens after that? Or do we because like I feel like what happens after this is also really important. Yeah, let's 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 finish the plot and then we can kind of loop back if there's more yeah. we want to talk about. So uh, crucially, like one, um, Andrew isn't he doesn't see any of the money. So there's money that's raised for the claimant, you know, sort of like support the claimant, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't see any of it. And Eliza, like, is sort of unable to kind of do the thing that she said to him. And she still talks to him and his son occasionally. But like she doesn't quite tell his her it, their story because she's not really a journalist, <laughs> but like she says she is. But and she wants to be, but she doesn't quite do that. And so like she kind of hangs out with the son and the son and her kind of treat her like this sort of weird old lady. <laughs> like they, they refer to her as like the queer lady journalist or something like at one point. And like she tries to write like this story kind of and she does It's called The Fraud. Um, and like time basically moves on past all of this. And like Andrew eventually dies. She finds out about it secondhand and she goes to the the there was like a commons protest with Andrew's son. Yeah, whose name is Henry. And uh, like basically they have like an argument, right? Yeah. Well, this is again, yeah. this is kind of I guess you would say this is I think if we're talking in terms of kind of formal like English class, like analysis, like this is the climax of the book is. Yeah. Yeah. Eliza goes to this this protest against like land uh, enclosement and she goes to Henry and they you know, she's she's talking about how like basically like fired up and like jazzed up. She is about like going to this protest and like participating and feeling like she's part of something. It's and, stuff that happens. You know, something is happening in England. Yeah. Yeah. And then Henry is basically the, we we have kind of the archetypical argument between the well-off liberal and the young more radical person yeah Uh, yeah race is obviously like an element here but i think that smith is drawing like parallels that you can see in these conversations whether we're talking about race or another issue uh Yeah, yeah but basically eliza is like things are happening and if we just you know keep working over time, things will get better and eventually things will be as good for uh, you as they are for me and things for me will be as good as they are for somebody else. And Henry's like, why should I have to wait for you? <laughs> like, why right. is yeah. why? Do, like, if I'm really like a free person. Why should I have to wait? Why can I not just take what is owed to me? <laughs> yeah. And Eliza is basically aghast by this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by yeah. this black man uh talking to her like this and that is like the last time she sees either of them and i think uh, crucially when 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 he starts sort of telling her this what you're saying is nonsense i should be able to do what you can kind of do uh like and and she's like well i'm a woman you know i'm not the same as a man and she's like well you can you can go anywhere you want i can't do that but as he's as yeah, he's doing this, she starts narrating what's happening. 
Yeah. Like literally like she starts writing as if it's happening. And I thought that was also really important where like, she's almost not even in the conversation. She's like outside the conversation, like, Oh, and then he said this, the young radical yelled at me. And so she's like, she's both like not kind of understanding what he's saying and depicting it in like this weird, like removed way. Uh, and who knows if it made it into the book, but and yeah, there's also, again, there's this little turn that happens in that scene because when we said earlier that like we basically spend all this time and Eliza said, forgot this one crucial scene. There is this one bit here. We're kind of in the middle of the chapter. We very briefly enter Henry's head and he's looking at Eliza and he's like the queer lady journalist, you know, was pacing back and forth and going on and on about her causes. Yeah. And I just smiled and nodded. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, they get into this argument and then all of a sudden we're back in Eliza's head. And like Ben said, she, Again, it's sort of interesting to think that this, you know, this, as John said, is sort of like your archetypical conversation, but it happens like after all of the Bogle stuff. And so it's almost like we, the reader, kind of get it, but like Eliza doesn't. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Yeah. And from there, like, like Ben said, like the, the rest of the book kind of like, again, this is our climax. Everything from here is like the falling action. We yeah. here's Boggle. Boggle is like pretty old at the start of the story. By the time, you know, the book ends, he's like 70 something and he he dies because he yeah. has had a very difficult life. Yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, so he he dies and is dead. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it really kind of enters this very strange, not like, like almost, yeah, kind of phantasmagorical like section where all of a sudden time is passing very, very, very quickly. All of a sudden, yeah. like Eliza is with Ainsworth as he's dying and, uh, you know, she's trying to like finish her novel sort of secretly. And it's yeah. also called the fraud. Yeah. But then she realizes like Ainsworth was the only person she would have like she has to hide it from. So now that he's dead, she doesn't have to hide it. Uh, yeah, so that's more or less the end of the book. However, the last line, not counting the afterward, is the mysteries of Mrs. Touche were finally unfathomable because William died and he's the, the one who really knew her. And I think that's an interesting line. Now, I know Rosemary Home says that, like, this is the real plight of the white liberal lady where she just kind of recedes into her own identity. And it's like, oh, I'm so complex and interesting and I can't join history and that's kind of like Rosemary Ho's uh, argument. I also take that last line to kind of be Zadie Smith taking a step back. And it's like, this I've done all I can to talk about Miss Touche and I have to stop here, kind of. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and also it's written in italics as if Elijah Touche was sort of narrating her own story. And I think one thing that I have been thinking about is sort of like the idea of like, yeah, it's like it is sort of the problem of kind of we could say like liberal politics is that like you're still too invested in your identity as like a sort of person who is a good person and you don't kind of get swept up in the cause. Cause like, I guess like if you were to swept up in the cause, you'd be there, you'd be fighting alongside, you know, Henry Bogle and you wouldn't really care about you kind of. Yeah. And I think like, that's an interesting moment there because like also, um, you know, like, yeah. What is this book saying about like getting invested in history or being like, you know, a person who is a good person or who appears good and therefore is good. You know, it's like because appearances are the only thing that matter. I don't know. It's it's a nice final line that I think to me, like kind of speaks to like what Zadie Smith was going for, which is like, yeah, the idea of like uh, a, a subject of history who is a liberal 
wants to appear a good person, but is not quite willing to get swept up in everything that happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, a brief section where they reference the fact that, at, again, at this time, kind of in the background of all these other events, Karl Marx is founding the first international men's working association or working men's association, which yeah. Eliza is not involved with at all. Uh, <laughs> and again, presumably is probably like not quite the the sort of like just engine of of resentment that the kind of populist cause of the claimant is where, again, it gets wrapped up in all this bullshit about anti-vaccine stuff and uh Again, <laughs> helping this fat moron like get a bunch of money he doesn't <laughs> deserve. Yeah, uh, you know. So yeah. I, I I feel like uh, we we kind of talked about this a little bit. We were talking about Masters of Atlantis. Uh, you know, kind of the the way where when you're presented with uh, social injustice, you you kind of have like a couple different options, and one of them is like to to try to like think. I guess like materialistically or at some level and like yeah, yeah. You know, it's like okay this is what needs to be done and like this is what needs to we need to do to do it and then you can also like retreat into mysticism whether that's religious mysticism or kind of the mysticism of the self represented by by liberalism right. uh, and kind of yeah. getting obsessed with like your own identity and and you know your own like personal morals and i think that again smith i think in a way that I, I think is is very big. I don't know, broad-minded. I don't, I don't know exactly what word I want to use here because I don't want to condescend and be like, Zadie Smith is a really smart lady. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, she, she doesn't act like this is an easy choice to make. Like, yeah, yeah. Liza is limited. Like, at some level, I think there is an element where she probably couldn't just go join Karl Marx's Communist Party because she has these personal responsibilities to her family. Yeah. She has these, at some level, like kind of bullshit hangups about like being a woman and, uh, you know, having to kind of step around Ainsworth. But those are, you know, these things that at some level are immaterial in a way, like they still affect us as individuals and you can't yeah. just elide them entirely. And yeah, I think your sort of social relations to other people are like, just as much as a reality as yeah, your ideals or like what you want to do. Yeah. You know, I think there's this, this kind of equally fantastic dream of, of kind of the socialist revolution where it's like, we will yeah. all realize like our, our material like interest and we'll basically like become a benevolent hive mind and we'll all give we up have nothing. To, yeah. Nothing to lose, but our chains. Yeah. yeah, yeah and exactly, it's like, yeah. And we'll we'll give up all our identities and we'll just like become a mass to move history forward in a big push. Yeah. And uh, obviously that's a simplification, but I think that that is like the the dream of kind of a lot of more idealistic thinking about like what socialist revolution looks like. And I yeah. think that what Smith is kind of trying to point to here, and I don't know what her personal politics are, uh, I don't know if she's a, a socialist or communist of any variety, but who knows? Uh, but she's kind of pointing to, again, like the thing about being an individual in history that's really hard is like you are both an individual and in history and you right. can't yeah. align either of those to like make yeah. the other one easier. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a novelist, you can't, you know, just depict one or the other also, because if you do just history, you know, it's either like the Ainsworth thing. Or it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter. This book takes place in the past and is safe. 
or it's like the sort of socialist realism to which Adorno referred to it as boy meets tractor literature, where it's just about like, oh, I have this tractor. Ah, I will I will I will serve the populace. You know, I am a selfless person who has no identity or it's like on the flip side. It's just like, yeah, too much identity, too much mystery of the self, which ultimately leads nowhere. So it's sort of like you have to strike this perfect balance between the two. And I think that's kind of what she attempted to do here. Yeah, well, and, you know, what I really found, something I found really interesting in this book, and and the thing that really got my wheels turning on this question is there are some really fascinating passages in this book where a character has an experience with an art object. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which, obviously, that's something you and I think about a lot as... uh, I'll put it, I'll be generous and say we're, we're independent critics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our own platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, obviously, you know, we, we've talked about it many a time in our, our personal conversations. You know, we're both, we both make like consuming art for lack of a better term. You know, it's, it's our thing uh, yeah. among others, but you know, we all have these experiences where like, especially now in, in, you know, 2024, where like everything is so much more mediated even than like it was in Victorian London. Like we're all having these experiences with like these, yeah, art objects, whether that's a, a book or a painting or a post uh, that, you know, we think are, are affecting us and are, are changing the way we see the world. And I think that this book is, is, it's trying to do that in a way in a, in a complicated way but it's it's yeah. there are these scenes where someone will see something and it will change the way they they look at the world so uh the first time i i, I noticed this happening in the book was uh eliza touche she sees the famous like kind of i guess you would call it like a, a cartoon i don't know exactly what the right phrase for it is but it's something i'm sure all of us saw like in our, our history classes growing the famous like abolitionist like drawing where it's like the yeah. slave kneeling and it says like ain't I a man and a brother and that is like the thing that suddenly like clicks in her brain that like she thinks slavery is bad like she basically right. sees yeah. like a, a an 18 uh, 19th century meme and it like totally shifts her perception of reality and like all of a sudden she she has this new purpose in life yeah uh, yeah and then Bogle, there are these really fascinating bits in the Bogle section where he goes to the, the Tichborn like country manor, which is obviously this like I, I was picturing because I watched Barry Lyndon like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was yeah, imagining yeah. like one of the ho- like country houses from Barry Lyndon, basically. But, you know, this ornate like English country manor and there's obviously like all this beautiful art everywhere and he sees two gratuitous of, displays of wealth. Yeah. Yes. And he sees yeah. two things in particular, that, like really like. Shift his like way of looking at the world, he sees like this uh, kind of like um, it's not like a mantelpiece, but it's like this piece of statuary uh, like worked into a wall, if I'm remembering exactly. But um, it portrays like a king and then like all these subjects like coming to the king. uh, And then at the bottom, like kind of trod underfoot is like a a black slave. And he's like, oh, like this is like the way the world is. And like that's even though like I'm here, I'm also there, (laughs) like at the bottom. (laughs) And so he sees this painting of like a, a young black man with like a bow and arrow, like hunting alone. And it's 
I think it's kind of like supposed to be like kind of a classical-ish scene. Uh, but for him, it like brings to mind like his sons and like maybe this idea that the world could be in some way like a little different. And yeah. I think Smith, again, like I think that it's her reflecting on kind of like what can art do? Uh, yeah. You know, I think that again, the the questions raised by like this, and also again the stuff with like bringing in people like Dickens, who thought art could change the world. You know, people who care about art, people who make art. We have this idea that art can make people see the world differently, maybe make them better, maybe change the world. Like, and I I don't totally disagree with that. I I don't take the the view uh that art makes you a better person that reading books makes you a better person like i don't believe the novel is like an empathy machine as some people have called it uh i think that whatever happens when you experience art like it's it's more complicated than that and i think that's what's happening here it's like you can have an experience with art it can be powerful it can be aesthetic but it's always going to be like internal and it's always going to be on you to actually make something out of that <laughs> Yeah, it might be better to say art makes you a different person. Yeah, because instead of a better person, you know, morals, oh, we should do this kind of thing. It's more like you experience art and then you are changed in some way. Yeah. And sort of defining what that change is, is the interesting part. And I think like um, I think, yeah, you've highlighted these moments where one, you know, a character is changed, but also like, you know, I, I think um, with the one that that Andrew sees like he sees the the thing of what it could be his son. And he's like, yeah, maybe my son could be that free one day, like free as this guy is depicted in this painting. And then, you know, then he sees the statue that is the order of things. And he's like kind of crushed, but this still doesn't like stop him from like trying to create a world where his son can be free. And that involves like going to Australia and like even throwing in with the claimant because his idea is that we could maybe get money to basically be provided for. And, you know, I think that's what's also interesting, too, about like what Smith is saying about the fraud, because we haven't really talked about who the fraud is. Yeah. You know, like on one hand, one hand, the fraud is the claimant. On the other hand, it could be Eliza Touche. But I mean, she does write a book. You know, that is something it's more than some people, you know, more than some of us can say. And she is changed by her experiences in some way, even if it's not like, you know, being so much so that she could kind of see what Henry is saying when he yells at her, as opposed to kind of depicting it as it's happening or like at a remove. Well, and I think that like the, the interesting thing with the title is that it does it has that definite article, the the there it's saying it, it yeah. wants us to think like there's one fraud we need to be on the lookout for him and yeah the obvious answer is oh it's the big fat moron claiming that he's this guy he looks nothing like uh which again i think we kind of talked about earlier like that's the easy answer and and i i'll tell you what don john J donald j frump is a god dang fraud <laughs> he's he's not who he says he says he is <laughs> but uh i i think i think kind of what the what i am taking away from this at least is that like every character in this book is is a fraud in some way or you know at least the characters yeah. who maybe yeah. we, we see enough of the the know their lives in that way because i think eliza is the fraud because she is on the one hand she claims all this progressiveness but then she also 
has this these obvious <laughs> gaps in like her understanding that she can't bridge. Ainsworth well, literally. We haven't even talked about like what she does with her inheritance too, yeah. which I think is important. But yeah, yeah. Ainsworth so, literally at one point like asks Eliza, "Am I a fraud?" Because uh, the other thing with Ainsworth, you know, there's a couple like excerpts from his prose and like comes across very hacky. Uh, so I, I, yeah, like the bit where he keeps using the phrase instead of said, he ejaculated. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, like I, I don't know what you've been, but after finishing this, like, I don't feel like I need to like go out and read any Ainsworth. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, <laughs> and, like, <laughs> even like Dickens, like there's a lot of really interesting stuff about like Dickens where everybody, again, by like the 1860s when the book starts, like Dickens has just died and He's kind of had developed like this sainted reputation. Everyone's talking about like how nice he was, how much he like believed in like social progress and like improving the lives of like the downtrodden. But then there's like a lot of stuff about like he's like, oh, in the scenes we like see him and he's kind of like a cab, like he's always like really like sexist to Eliza. Yeah. You know, they make a lot of like how he basically thought like women just shouldn't ever talk. <laughs> and uh yeah. like the way that yeah. he like treated people in like this very like instrumental way, where like he was always just like he was very like friendly to people, but basically just because he was like trying to like get caught, like basically mine people for like quirks that he could use to make characters for his novels who usually yeah, like yeah. are controllable by him. Uh, and, it, you know. Boggle, I think, is maybe the tough one, but I think, again, we were talking about earlier, like we don't know how much of like his story is true and like how much he believes about what he's saying about the claimant you know so no, and i and i wonder too if if like bogle doesn't think he like when they say oh bogle's so nice as a servant he doesn't get mad and like bogle realizes that he could get mad and he can't you know yeah. like, and i think that's partly why he breaks the the the, the, glass. the glass in his hand because it's like i should be mad i should be like you know angry at these people for enslaving me and he has to perform this duty because that's the only way he thinks he can to survive, basically. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, so like, I don't know. Yeah. I think that, like, the fraud is, is again, this is kind of hacky, but the fraud is everyone. Like, the fraud is the yeah. fact that, like, we, and again, this kind of, kind of to go back to what you were saying about art earlier, like, we, we develop these ideas about ourselves, you know, through basically, in a lot of ways, especially, like, basically from modernity on, you know, mass literacy on, you know, through mediation, through like yeah. the media we consume and take in, you know, we think that that says something about us, you know, our, our value as people and the ideas that we believe in, you know, the more books you read that are, you know, socialist, the better a socialist you are, the more books you read about art, the better an artist you are, whatever, you know, you want to say. Um, but again, we always like fall short of like the, the perfect image of like what the person who reads xyz should be you know yeah. we, we can never fully bridge the gap between like what we think we should be and what the things we like take in tell us we should be and what we are which is again a person like living in history like a a, yeah. a subject who is free in some ways and constrained in others yeah yeah and who has like you know social relations as well which are their own sort of freeing and constraining things yeah 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 and yeah, like that's that's really what I took away from it is that that we're all the fraud, like the fraud is us. Yeah. <laughs> the fraud is society. The fraud is is being an individual. I, I don't know. Again, like I said, it's that's such like a hacky answer on one level because it's like, oh, it's everybody. But it's like it is. <laughs> what can you say? Well, yeah. And it, 
and I think it applies to what Zadie Smith kind of wants to say, because like, yeah, like, you know, what what should a novelist say about something? And it's like, well, if the novelist thinks like what the true thing is, then they should just depict that. But a good novelist knows that, like, you know, it's more difficult. It's more interesting. It's more complex. Yeah. And sort of presenting it that way, I think, is is supposed to actually get you to think and maybe be a different person as opposed to just getting the answer or like the truth, well, like, yeah, whatever that is. I've been thinking a little bit about like, let's let's take this book and let's let's cut it apart a little bit. So we've already kind of talked about the okay. first part kind of is a little dull. Doesn't quite yeah. work. Second part we really liked. But would it work if you took out the first part? Could we just have a book that's just this slave narrative, basically? And would that would maybe be truer? But would yeah. it be as would it be as good to read? Is there something true being shown or said by comparing and contrasting these things? You know, this is like a very like, I think, formally like innovative and like deft novel. Um, I mean, it's yeah. not like experimental yeah. exactly, but it's showing like a lot of confidence and like playing around with like form in a way that I think a lot of even mainstream like popular writers would not feel comfortable doing. Um, Especially, I think, letting the kind of Vogel stuff wait yeah. until the part where it's fully given the space to because like you know the first part jumps around so much she could have just easily jumped to bogle's perspective but instead it's like yeah you just get it all she at lets once. us sit. like it's like yeah yeah and you know i think that again that's that's kind of again showing that there is value in like doing craft stuff and actually caring about like art qua art Versus yeah. just being like, I am the socialist realist novelist and I'm going to show you the yeah. unflinching like look at what reality is. And uh, maybe it's truer in the sense that like you. Yeah, maybe you see like the horror like more immediately, but maybe you get bored halfway through and you don't finish it. You know, I think back yeah. to when I was in high school, I, I, I have this anecdote where in my history class, I think this is a probably actually not a super uncommon thing. We read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, but partially we only read part of it. <laughs> we only read huh. the first part. Uh, Interesting. Where, you yeah. know, all the all the factory stuff. And then once, like, it becomes a, a politics novel at the end, we stopped. Because the teacher was like, that's boring. Uh, he also probably was like, uh, why would I have these kids read all this socialist stuff uh, when I'm trying yeah, to teach them yeah. about the clean food and drug addicts? But, uh, I mean, I do think that probably a lot of people do kind of put that novel down at a certain point because they're not there to get like lectured. Right. Yeah. And it becomes like a, well, and then it's like, well, what do we do about this? Well, clearly we, we unionize, you know, we, we, we push back, but like, you know, for some people that's not interesting, but that's like what needed to be presented. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, yeah, what do we do about this horrible stuff? Yeah. And again, like that's the thing with this novel that is, is again, I, maybe this is again, kind of what she's doing with the historical fiction is, I think, again, if she was writing this, I, I don't know what you would do to, like, tell this story contemporaneously. Like, I don't know that you could obviously couldn't tell this exact story contemporaneously, but there's yeah. a maybe a, a, a similar novel you could do that takes place in 2023. But I feel like there would be more of a. A call for it to say, like, what do we do about this? Whereas by doing it, by situating it historically, you can you can leave these questions to breathe because at some level, 
in some ways they're settled. In a lot of ways, they're still not settled. <laughs> but in some yeah, ways, we can't yeah. do anything about the Titchburn case. It's already ended. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and I also think too, like, um, yeah, authenticity is an interesting word because it's like I think if you read the afterward, which we didn't exactly touch on, I don't know if we have to, but Zayn Smith's sort of like you know Elijah Touche is a character that I don't like. I wanted to talk about, like, I wanted to talk about who Elijah Touche is from like a almost a historical perspective, and I think what's interesting in the afterward is like she doesn't really say why. Like, it's just like oh, I should just talk about this, and I think like. That's an interesting impetus too to like, you know, I want to tell Eliza's story. There's a difference between like presenting it straight and presenting it as juxtaposed with all of this other stuff. And I think like that sort of back and forth is like the important part. And I think, yeah, if she had said it now, I don't know, it would have been almost like too current. Yeah. Like people would have been, yeah, it's like the fact that it said some remove allows us to think about it a little bit more, like sit with it, like you said, for, you know, uh, for the, uh, the boggle stuff. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I like the, like, oh, so another book I'm reading is the wager by David Gran, who, um, you know, he's the guy that wrote flower moon, the killers of the flower moon book. Mm-hmm. And in that one, he's just kind of like, you know, I'm telling a story cause I think it's cool. <laughs> and like, and like, that's certainly a fine reason for a book, but when he tries to like make the story matter to other ideas and like the wager is about the shipwreck that like, um, happened during the height of like you know, England's sort of nautical colonial power. And like uh, what happens is the shipwreck happens as a result of like um, problems with the leadership. And one side has their story about what happens. And the other side has their story. And he's like, I'm going to tell these two stories and it's going to be about what is truth. You know, that's what he says. Like we all have our stories to tell. And I just remember going like, eh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> like, And you can tell like he's done all of this like great historical research and like, that's kind of the story, not like, what is it about? And I think like Zadie Smith, like has done clearly historical research, but it's more about like, yeah, what, do, what happens when I put these two narratives side by side? What does that say about like, what does it mean to read? Why should we care about art? And why should we care about like social stuff? Because I would say it is a social novel. Absolutely. But that to me is, is much more interesting than just kind of look at me. I've reported all the facts of the situation of this, like, you know, this uh, seafaring tale. Yeah, if you want to read a textbook, so, just read a textbook. Right. And like, you know, he tries to interject some stuff in it and whatnot. But like, I think he's more just like this story needs to be told kind of like it's almost like journalistic in a, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think like I think literature can get towards more interesting stuff because it's like it's not concerned with the journalism aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, because crucially, I think the afterward does state that, like, a lot of this is conjecture on Smith's part. Like, it's not like a lot lot of the the events around, like, Touche's life are are conjecture. Uh, We don't have, like, her... It's like she, like, got her hands, like, her diary and, like, you know, presented everything exactly as she found it. Like, there's a lot here where she's she's reading between the lines and, and projecting back on this person in the past. Uh, I like this line in the afterward, by the way, uh, Mrs. Touche, a woman always partly phantasmagoric extends herself far beyond her earthly span here. In reality, she died before her cousin on the 4th of February. So yeah, he has William die first, but I like that aside. She's always partly phantasmagoric. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but well, uh, Great book. Uh, you know, I think we both kind of thought for a little bit this might be the first one we read that we like didn't like. 
still hasn't happened yet, which yeah. I'm happy for. <laughs> we'll see, <laughs> I guess. And uninterrupted, John, nothing but nothing but W's. We're just never going to read anything we don't like. Just, yeah. Buckets. <laughs> yeah. Buckets, turkey, you know, we, we got a strikes. We, we got it all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, come to the Infinite Library. Uh, the winning never stops. Uh, always hitting jackpots. Every book is a great book. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, uh, do we want to do Rex and then close the door on, on the fraud? Yeah, I think so. Um, I honestly don't know what I would wreck. I actually ended up thinking a lot about uh, Marlon James, A Brief History of Seven Killings, while I was reading this because. I mean, one true is Jamaica. That'd be like the surface connection. But the fact that like in like in this Marlon James kind of like gives every character their true say, despite kind of any contradictions or complexities that might happen. And like, I would say like Brief Histories of Seven Killing is kind of like a, a realist novel. Like there's there's not quite the sort of I think like you were pointing out, John, kind of like slightly unrealist things that happen in this, but like having characters speak what happens to them in like a true and unique way, I think is like really cool. And I, I particularly like those kinds of books more than I like the ones that stick to the third person remove, you know, God mode. Yeah. I like it when it gets really in the weeds, so to speak of like a character psyche. And so like, and I would say brief history of seven killings does that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, and so, yeah, I think that's more of my connection with that book rather than them both being about Jamaica, but like, Something about like the 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 friction that happens when you you know have Bogle speak his whole mind is kind of what I get from Seven Killings. Yeah, so yeah. I would say yeah, Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James would be if you want more of this, but like a different angle. I think. Well, I also have a book that's maybe kind of more of this, but a different angle. And uh, my recommendation for this week, if you read The Fraud and you liked it, is going to be The Night Ocean by Paul Lafarge, uh, which is a book I read a couple years ago, and. Uh, absolutely adored i think uh, i told you a little bit about it at one point ben uh kind of a, a brief little thing it it is a book kind of like this where it uh seems like one thing at the beginning and then you realize that it's a different thing but in this case also it does a, another turn and you find out it's actually a oh, secret nice. third thing because uh, it actually does something very interesting where the, the beginning starts very exciting and then it takes a turn that actually seems like it's gonna be very disappointing and it's like it's a huge letdown and we're like getting like three quarters of that book and like thinking like oh i hate this i want this to end <laughs> and then it and then all of a sudden it takes a huge second turn and all of a sudden it's like oh this fucking rules so hard uh wow sounds great yeah, yeah. but uh kind of brief overview like starts off uh, uh the the kind of like one page like no spoilers ideas like it's a guy he he thinks he finds uh some letters that prove that hp lovecraft is gay and he's trying to track down the source of these letters to confirm it one way or the other uh and then there's some twists and turns from there so uh, in terms of kind of like a literary novel uh because it's definitely like lit thick despite the lovecraft connection uh that comes across as very conventional to start and then makes a big left turn and all of a sudden you are you are like a different planet uh yeah that one gets uh, a big two thumbs up from me along with the fraud all right so yeah this sounds great i uh i'm, I'm gonna check that yeah. out i i like the the premise we might so. uh we might want to do that for an ep at some point uh it's a great fall read cool yeah all right well uh listeners thank you again so much for joining us uh we really appreciate your 
continued listenership. Uh, 2023 was a good first year, I think. Obviously, we, we kind of started this a little late into the year, but uh, I think 2024 is going to be a, a big year for the podcast, and we really hope you guys stay with us and keep on reading. Yeah, uh, keep on reading. Uh, Semper Books. Semper Books. Thank you for listening to The Infinite Library. If you liked our show, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. It helps us a lot. If you want to follow us on social media, we can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Infinite Library Pod. If you'd like to contact our team directly with episode ideas or feedback, you can email us at infinitelibrarypod at gmail.com. Our intro music is by Amos Legend in the Forest of Mayhem. Our outro music is by DJ Daggy Diggs, and our logo is created by Lars Noir. You can support our show by supporting them. We hope you'll join us back in the stacks for the next episode soon. Semper Books, bookheads. <laughs>